Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, over the years, we've done many shows on economics, but nothing on that most surreal of economic realities or perhaps economic unrealities is the Argentine economy. The new Argentine president, Javier Milay, is uh, quite a character, perhaps a reflection of the peculiarity of Argentine economics and economic history. It's hard to tell the current state of the Argentine economy. Apparently, it's back in the black, according to one headline. Another headline suggests that the economy shrank in December uh, by the most since the pandemic. And then the astonishing fact that 57% of the Argentine population uh, is in poverty. Certainly, uh, the Argentine economy uh, is something that uh, in many reflects reveals the odd relationship between media and Milay, and it's hard to tell how much of it is true or not. Certainly, it's not just Milay that um, reflects the surreal quality of the Argentine economy. Uh, over the years, once once one of the most powerful economies, the wealthiest economies in the world, uh, the economy, the Argentine economy, has shrunk in all sorts of ways. And one of the oddest chapters in the hundred year, last hundred year history of the Argentinian economy is when uh, the entire economy defaulted. Uh, and now we have a new book out on that. It's called Default, the Landmark Court Battle over Argentina's, uh, Argentina's $100 billion debt restructuring. It's by my guest, uh, Gregory Makoff. Uh, Gregory, congratulations on the book. Is there something surreal about the Argentine economy? Do you need to be an economist or perhaps a, a fantasist to make sense of it? Uh, it's incredibly surprising what's happening. I finished the book about 18 months ago and I couldn't imagine the rise of Millet, but in a sense, he's the historical inevitability of these failures. Imagine a character coming out of year after year of financial chaos, a couple of good years followed by more crisis, and he comes with a chainsaw. And he says, our problem is we've spent too much, it's time to cut the budget. This is Argentina, no other country's invented a national narrative like that. this. History is unfolding in front of our eyes. Argentina history has never had a character like this. But as you say, he's an inevitability. So as I noted in the introduction, and, and you know obviously a lot more about this than I do, if we were talking 125 years ago in 1900, Argentina had what? One of the, the seven wealthiest economies in the world. Is that correct? Yes. It was richer in Europe. Wealth pretty much based on agricultural production or natural resources or industrial production. It was a lot of beef exports to Europe, agricultural production, a very good balance of payments. In Europe, they used to say rich as an Argentine. I think they were 30% higher per capita income than, let's say, Spain or Italy around the turn of the century. That's astonishing. And then 
125 years later, where does our, our Argentina rank in the world's economies? I don't, I don't have the number, but it's basically stagnated since since 2010. And if you, I started college in 1982, August, the same month Mexico defaulted, starting a decade of crisis in most countries, developing countries after Volcker raised rates. Since then, most countries, developing countries, stopped defaulting. They reformed, they worked with the IMF, they restructured their debt, and they were done. And now we have Argentina since the 90s continuing to stagnate. And so the policy question is, what is Mexico in Brazil, in Colombia, in Chile, in Peru doing different than, let's say, Venezuela and Argentina, who are in deep trouble? Yeah, so, not only that. I mean, what what has happened over the last 125 years that made Korea or Singapore uh, or, or countries like Thailand re relatively strong economies and Argentina has shrank so dramatically? So before we get to the default, what happened for the first 80 years of the 20th century? What went wrong with the Argentine economy? Was it simply the borrowing of a strong state, a greedy state? It's the, the story I write, and I'm a former banker, so it's really a financial story about how Argentina related to its foreign bondholders, its foreign courts. I read all the history and research for it, but it started getting more populist around 1910, and it started creating more of a patronage state. And in the 30s, you had more of a military and unionist sort of control. And they made certain choices during World War II that didn't play very well and became more isolationist. So there's actually a combination. It's not all debt. It's isolationism and populism. And then the failure, a lot of countries were making those mistakes. But when the rest of the world said, hey, we've all been making mistakes since 1930, Argentina didn't follow the script other people did. It would for a couple years, but then it would fall back behind. So, Gregory, I've heard a number of different narratives, and they all reflect different political camps. The standard leftist narrative is that essentially the Argentine economy has been stolen by the wealthy fascist class. Um, another critique, of course, is that Peronism uh, naturally led to this. Is there some truth to this? Because there still remains some very, very wealthy Argentinians. I've spent some time in the country. Uh, and Buenos Aires, for example, is still full of magnificent homes and expensive restaurants and expensive stores. So is this a class thing or how would you analyze it? I really don't see Argentina's economy as exceptional. You know the old saying, there are four economies in the world, right? The advanced economies, the developing economies, Japan and Argentina. So the the world... That's a great <laughs> phrase. Who, who Was that Churchill? No, it probably wasn't. No. Keynes, maybe. No, it's someone later than that. But, um, and I decided I don't like exceptionalism here. They simply, since the 90s, 
spent a little bit more than they brought in. That's all. And but we're it's not doing... just a little bit. I mean, what happened to all the wealth, all the all the beef, all, all, all the incredibly rich agricultural land, all the resources? There's they had in the 90s under Menem a lot of decent reforms and had a lot of international support, but and fixed their currency to the dollar, which is famous. But they were always spending a bit more and slowly building up more and more external debt. When they had a little cash, they should have paid it down. So it's like death by a thousand cuts at some points. And they, after, and one of the sad parts of my story, after the default of 2001, with the Peronist government of Nestor Kirchner, his minister of economy was strong, they ran strong surpluses for four years. Then they got tired of working hard and went back into deficits. In the crisis we're seeing- Like an alcoholic, they got off, they, they, yeah. it's always hard to get off the wagon really, isn't it? So, so it's like, if you say they have, they're exceptional and different than everyone else, you're like giving them an excuse. It's like balance the budget. And there are difficult conversations between how much money of the state goes to poor people and patronage jobs and how much taxes people pay. But like us here in the United States, we're not having those conversation rights and what's happening to our debt. Although maybe we'll get to this later in the conversation. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that the, uh, the future of America is, is, um, is the Argentina scenario, but perhaps you, you don't agree. You mentioned Brazil and Venezuela. What about Chile? We've done some shows on the Chicago economists and the way in which the so-called uh, Chicago boys went down to Chile in the 70s and 80s, supported General Pinochet, but also reformed their economy. Was or is Chile the reverse of Argentina? Is it the, the other side of the coin? Well, in a sense, but I'm I'm a debt crisis person, so I don't get called in on the average scenarios. I get called in when a country's in a mess, and so I didn't spend a lot of time in Chile because they've had issues, they have inequality issues, they've had political issues recently. As a human being, I'm deeply concerned about their history of human rights violations, but they've been on the higher rated, more stable countries in the region, but so has Colombia, has been quite a good credit over the time. Panama did very well for a long time. Peru as well. Mexico hasn't, hasn't gone close to trouble since the peso crisis. So I think I'm grouping Latin America not in Argentina versus, versus Chile model, but sort of Argentina, Venezuela, Ecuador versus the rest. What are those getting in deep, repeated debt trouble doing that the others aren't? Yeah, and Argentina, of course, doesn't have a particularly attractive human rights record either. What is, in your view, or what could be the relationship between democracy and these perpetual debt crises in Argentina? Has there been not enough democracy? Had Argentina pioneered the kind of democracy which in some ways Chile had, 
Might uh, the crises have been less intense? Uh, in a very general sense, democracies tend to have trouble with debt everywhere. Because if you're an elected politician and you have a choice, and your choice is to cut spending, raise taxes, or borrow a bond, what are you going to do? You're always going to go for the bond unless there's some kind of superstructure of policy that says, oops, we don't do that past a certain limit because we don't want to get in trouble with our debt. In a lot of countries, they go up to those limits. They go beyond their limits. Oh, it's a crisis year. We have to go beyond the limit because of COVID. That was a good reason. Countries all over the world busted their rules. And then the question is, if you busted your rules and built up debt, do you have some discipline to bring it down to a safe level? Argentina doesn't have the controls. It's more election to election. Until Millet. They voted for a guy. This is coming to the democracy example. Most politicians are party now, pay later. This guy, pain now, safety later. But it could only have been in Argentina. You have got to have experienced a lot of pain to elect a Malay, don't you? Uh, exactly. Uh, Gregory, I'm not an economist. Most of our audience isn't it's not an academic show on on uh, on on economics but often certainly critics of debt particularly in a political sense uh, compare the irresponsible individual with the irresponsible state so when a state goes into debt it's because they can't control their spending in the same way as an individual goes into debt because they can't keep their their credit cards in their pockets is that the right way of thinking of it? Or is the equivalent between a, an out-of-control consumer and an out-of-control state uh, quite different? No, I've used the analogy myself. So it's simple math. You don't, and I'm not an economist. I'm a physicist by training. And I went into banking and economists always kind of intimidated me with their equations and all their mumbo jumbo in the end debt is about adding and subtracting are you spending more than you're bringing in if you do that 10 years running it gets bigger and you don't need to be an economist to understand interest on interest compounds on you you know how you save five percent or ten percent of your income and you work for 40 50 years and you have a nice retirement we're all supposed to learn that for saving for our retirement it works in reverse. It kills you if you always spend just a couple percent too much each year and you're paying interest on interest, like a developing country, sometimes at a 10% real rate, it kills you really fast. That's where the US is different because we were funding our great financial crisis bailout money at 0%. Whereas countries like Argentina were borrowing at 10%. Well, one of the things that's reassured me, Gregory, about this is I need sponsors of the show to so that I don't, I don't, uh, I can run my books in a balanced way. And I'm thrilled that Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, helps finance this show and bring such high quality guests as uh, 
as Gregory Maycoff. Uh, it's an excellent new quarterly of culture and politics, also touches on economics. Going to run a short feature on liberties. And then we'll be back with uh, Gregory Maycoff to talk specifically about the debt crisis and the landmark court battle over Argentina's $100 billion debt restructuring. So don't go away, anyone. Don't spend any money. This is free for you. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. Is indeed invaluable. It costs you a little bit of money to subscribe at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking about Argentina, uh, not the model, not uh, not uh, not the kind of economy that we all want to emulate. With our guest Gregory Makov, author of an intriguing new book, he spent a lot of time on it. It's called "Default: The Landmark Court Battle Over Argentina's Hundred Billion Dollar Debt Restructuring." Gregory, before we get to that, explain. You, you described yourself as a banker rather than an economist, and you focus on debt crises. What exactly do you do? Um, I worked for 21 years in banking, working on a debt capital markets desk. I helped countries, companies, banks deal with their debt. Sometimes they had too much money. They're making a lot of money. They wanted to buy back their debt. And sometimes I get the call, there's a country down in South America, they can't pay their debt. They need help. Greg, get on the plane. Well, you know, then you're getting a plane to Buenos Aires, right? Yeah. And I spent a lot of time in Kingston, Jamaica in 2010 to 13. Um, often I tried to just work with countries not in trouble. Like, what can they do to stay out of trouble? How can they get their credit ratings higher? So you'd much rather in life help people avoid trouble. But there are those calls. How much uh, personally, how much personal time did you spend in Argentina in terms of this uh, restructuring of their debt? Well, this restructuring I did not work on. I lived the restructuring. We're talking about the default on about $100 billion in 2001 in December, the restructuring in January and February 2005. I had called upon Argentina about their debt. I knew they were in a debt trap, but I lived in London from 1999 to 2006, so I only read about it in the newspapers. I was following it carefully. I could never, ever understand it. It went on forever. It was messy. It was all sorts of name calling. And then there was this lawsuit that went on for 10 more years. I could never understand it. So when in 2017, I left my job and I was writing about debt. I worked at the U.S. Treasury for a year on Puerto Rican debt. I said, what am I going to write about? And I said, why don't I write about the one I didn't understand? And what Which, didn't you understand that you now do? Well, <laughs> two things. One is why did it take so long? Argentina defaulted December 24, 2001. And Gregory, sorry to interrupt here, but... What does default mean? Is it essentially a country declares bankruptcy? That's a great question. Typically, it means 
there's a press release that goes out declaring a moratorium because Argentina has 152 different bonds. It can't not pay them all the same day. It doesn't pay them when the next coupon day comes. So that goes to Congress. They pass a law that says, we declare a moratorium. We're not going to pay anymore. And on that time in Argentina, they all clapped. It's an extraordinary beginning of the story. Moratorium. And then they stopped making the payments. And they did not make an offer to settle it till January 2005. An extraordinary amount of time. And they're not paying people a penny for all that period. The deal I worked on for Jamaica, they never missed a payment. So who, who were most of the debt debtors? Uh, who, who, who were... Was it individuals owning government bonds, Argentines, or large banks, other governments? This was $100 billion worth of claims, about 80 principal, 20 billion eventually of unpaid interest, over half a million moms and pops, mostly in Italy, Germany, Japan, hedge funds, banks, Argentine pension funds, Argentine retail, every single account in the world. You know S&P 500 index, right? So there's the MB index for emerging market bonds. This was the biggest component of the index. So everybody owns some. So, but who, who buys Argentine bonds? It's like buying land in Florida, isn't it? Well, you know, here's the sad human story is it, Italy is different than the US. When you you go to the bank, they don't offer you a government bond, right? You get a CD. In Italy, they had long funded the government with government bonds. If you remember pre-Euro in the 90s, Italian government bonds paid 10, 12%. But when they joined the Euro around 2000, the yields went down to the German yield of 3%. And the Italian moms and pops retirees at 60 would go into their local bank branch and say, what can give me more yield? And they said, well, you could have Russian bonds or Argentine bonds and they'd, for 10% yield. And they said, well, I like Argentine soccer players, so I'll take Argentine bonds. Uh, yeah, it's uh, to, to, I, I kind of avoid the pun, uh, Gregory. It's, uh, it's, it's a messy business. Um, is it, was it the equivalent or is it the equivalent of buying cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Argentine bonds? You know... <laughs> It's funny you say that because uh, it's it's really not bonds, sovereign bonds, which I mean, not government bonds like U.S. bonds. I mean, developing countries borrowing under New York or English law. So it's under a foreign law. So it's kind of higher quality. It's about a trillion dollar market. You get coupons, three, five, seven percent. It's a real asset and you mostly get paid. Crypto, you don't get a coupon. It's not under any law. What if your broker goes bad? It's like crypto is a much more dangerous asset class. Sovereign debt, their credit ratings, their SEC reports on most of the issuers. So it is a risk class, but is an income earning class. And you're funding countries, developing countries, most of whom are growing with the money. So, but, sorry, yeah. go no, no, but some of them default because they're sloppy or in some cases because of external events like COVID. 
Okay, so Argentine, Argentina defaulted on this debt, this $100 billion debt, took till 2005 for them to sort of formalize that. What was the court battle about? Was it about suing the the, the Argentine government or the economy so that all the, the mom and pups in Italy and elsewhere get their money back? Sovereign debt, this asset class I talked about, has a problem. So most of the debt we're talking about in the book is debt documented under the law of New York. That's how most sovereign bonds in the world are documented. And there's no bankruptcy law for foreign countries. If you're a company, what do we have? Chapter 11. You go to the court in whatever state or Delaware, say, I can't pay. Mm. And they say, fine, you get a stay of litigation, you get protection from creditors. And then there's some kind of workout, there's some kind of vote of the different classes. And if two thirds vote on it, it applies to all of them. And the old debts are discharged and new debts are issued. You're cleaned up, you go back to life. Some of the debt is converted to equity. There's personal bankruptcy. It took us a hundred years. We didn't have a bankruptcy law until around 1896. And then it took another hundred years of evolution until we have our current form of the bankruptcy code. Sovereign debt, you can't file for bankruptcy. So we're like in the middle ages. You can't force anyone into a deal. So Argentina's 2005 deal was voluntary. There was no legal mechanism to force anyone to take it. And Argentina's government, under this strong minister I referred to, he was running big surpluses. He did not want the country to go back into default. He said, the problem is I need you to take a loss of 64% of your bonds. And I'll give you bonus payments if our economy grows later in this other instrument. 64% haircut. So creditors would get new bonds equal to 34 cents on the dollars, 66% haircut. Creditors hated that. And there was this big fight over whether Argentina was paying enough and Argentina threatened, they passed a law in Argentina saying, we're not gonna pay you a penny if you don't come in. And most creditors said, I'm tired of this, I'll take the deal. But 24%, of the 82 billion didn't take the deal 20 billion didn't and sued so because argentina asked for such a big haircut because it had such a big fight with the creditors in 2005 it was left with this rump of non-participants who wanted to sue which included 200,000 moms and pops in italy included very difficult sophisticated hedge funds who wanted to make a big profit and a bunch of other people and there were hundreds of suits dozens of appeals an unprecedented level of litigation and and unprecedented rulings coming out of this morass of litigation that's so gregory this is obviously a cautionary tale this is (laughs) this is what you warn not your kids but certainly your governments not to be like but who is it a cautionary tale for is it for argentine government officials, Argentine industrialists? Is it for mom and pops in Italy who buy government bonds? Is it for the IMF? Where's the caution here? And what what can we learn from it? You know, 
it's really a study in compromise and the lack of compromise because Argentina's uncompromising and it fights with the IMF who's uncompromising. Argentina's uncompromising. The creditors are uncompromising. There's fight in court. And you have political problems or economic problems like we have in Congress now. And people fight and fight and fight instead of just shaking hands and giving in. But instead, Argentina and the plaintiffs fought to the bloody end. And they both had good reasons. This isn't just a big blaming on Argentina for being difficult. Argentina's case was 76% of our creditors agreed to a big haircut to help us recover as a nation. And these last 24% want to make a killing. We can't pay them more than the others. That's what they said in court. And the creditors said a contract is a contract and they need to be honored. And they stuck like that year after year while the creditors are trying to grab yeah, it's, it. It's, um, it's, yeah. it's enough to give you, a, an, for anyone, banker, economist, Argentine citizen, investor, give you a headache. Uh, you talked about this 2080 rule. Um, one of the pieces I read to prepare for our conversation today suggested that after the default, Argentina had an unsustainable 2080 economy. What exactly does that mean? And, and why is it unsustainable? Um, I can't speak to the unsustainability. The, the things people talk about unsustainability in Argentina have to do with the, you, you need two sustainabilities. One is sort of a domestic budget in and out sustainability, you need what's called a balance of payment sustainability, meaning the country has to bring in enough foreign currency to pay off the foreign currency outflows, i.e. on foreign debt. And they have a problem in that there's very productive agricultural sectors, but the industrial sector is not very competitive. So the question, how can a small segment of the economy hold up all the other households. So they have very difficult distributional issues in setting government policy. I don't get into the weeds of that because as an external debt expert is, you guys need to rewrite your social contract so you stop defaulting. Whoever gets what and pays what to government, you need to bring in a little bit more than you spend. And so... But I think um, there is an 80-20 concept, but there's there's a consequence of Argentina's battles that is more a public policy consequence. Right, a political one. And it seems as if they're in such a deep hole. And, you know, the, the human cost is, is appalling. I mean, 57% of the population is in, po in formal poverty. I mean, that's an astonishingly astonishing number and a very troubling one. Um, can they get out of it, Gregory? Is there any way out of this? Or, or, or is, is what Milai is doing, is it in any way credible? Uh, let, me, let me say something like that. And let me also, after that, ask me about, is there a way out of the chaos of default? Are we going to have countries having these 15 years of messes? For Argentina, I've been in lots of crisis countries. If they can 
restore confidence and believe in themselves and sustain reform for a bit, the economic numbers will respond. What's killing them at the household level is inflation. I've texted with friends down there. They said, how can we have any hope when prices are doing this? And you and I know if you stop printing money, inflation comes down. They just had such a large overhang, monetary overhang, that it's taking very rapid fiscal consolidation. So while you did note that the economic growth is falling, the money supply is falling and inflation should come. I think what you would hope, as painful and horrible these measures are, that you'll see some stabilization. The country will start believing in itself. Politicians will do the right thing and compromise. Both parties, not fighting each other in the street, and agree a set of actions to reset this social contract that sustains. So I'm optimistic. It's going and to you're not the first or the last person to be optimistic about the Argentine economy. I, I hope you're right. Finally, um, Gregory, we talked about this as a cautionary yeah. tale. It's very much of a moral tale more than an economic yeah. one. Should Americans, I mean, of course, you want everybody to read your book, but should Americans imagine their future in an Argentine-like scenario of simply borrowing more and more and digging a deeper and deeper hole? I don't, I don't see it like that. We're the biggest, strongest country with the deepest capital markets. We print money in our own currency. For us, the problem of our debt, which is elevated but not scary, is what happened with Liz Truss in September 2022. You remember mm. that? Yeah, where well, the markets essentially pushed her out of office because it wouldn't they wouldn't do what she wanted them to do. Well, they announced a big tax cut without a plan. And the markets say, well, then you're going to issue a lot more debt. And they pushed up the long-term interest rate. So what you worry about as for moms and pops in America is, is unfunded tax cuts leading to the market to get upset. And then 30-year bond rates go up and mortgage rates go up and that hurts everybody. So I don't think we're facing a crisis in the street type of scenario, but we, we're face, we could face sooner rather than later misery when markets say, you know, Washington, it's time for you to have a commission to what I would call bend the curve. 